All right, I have Al Martin on the line. Al Martin is the, should I say, creator of uh, the New York Comedy Club, no longer the owner, but the creator of the New York Comedy Club, the Broadway Comedy Club, the Greenwich Comedy Club. Am I missing any? No, you got him. Do you still do the one in Boca? Uh, No longer there, but yes, I did create the New York Comedy Club in Boca Raton. So most of these places I've uh, had the privilege of performing at. And more than that, the New York Comedy Club, I've talked about on the show uh, different clubs that I got my start at. And uh, the first stage time I ever did was at Stand Up New York. But the club where I really felt like, uh, where I feel like I really became a comedian was the New York Comedy Club. And that's largely in part thanks to to you, Al. Thank you. Yes. Uh, So many people... Uh, Danny, around the time you started, uh, got their start over at New York Comedy Club. But it's funny, uh, where you pretty much have acknowledged it here, (laughs) a lot of people, when they go on to stardom, they always seem to have started at Caroline's. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Right? They they started on the 9 o'clock Saturday show at Caroline's when they're interviewed. But, uh, yeah, a lot of people started... Back in the day, over at New York Comedy Club. Yeah, everybody wants to, uh, you know, go with the whatever I guess is the the most glamorous name in their opinion. Yeah, uh, yeah. Now there was nothing Basically, glamorous about the New York Comedy Club. Let's uh, be real about no. that. <laughs> yeah, nothing. Definitely nothing glamorous about it. It's and there's a reason for it. You know, basically, so many times nowadays, um, you know, you hear that people, especially in New York, not so much I don't hear about it in L.A., but people get together and they open up a comedy club with investors, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. where they're putting up other people's money. Yeah. So when you build a business with other people's money, you don't care what you spend on it. You know, uh, There's a, a, a comedy club in Manhattan that has gold uh, toilets, uh, gold in their bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But my clubs all started with basically my own money, which I didn't have a lot of, and therefore uh, they don't look as pretty. But you know what? In terms of a comedian, I could never understand that because in terms of what's important to a comic, if it has an audience and it has a microphone, that should be all that the comic gives a crap about. It right. doesn't matter whether it's, you know, it's a, a high-end dinner uh, theater. Uh, right. Sometimes the best rooms, you can't say that the Comedy Cellar's original room is anything fancy, you know? Um, Well, what I was going to, you're kind of getting me there, but what I was going to say is I remember a long time ago you talking about uh, why you felt that the New York Comedy Club was the perfect comedy club because it was so grungy, because it was so beat down. It was very much like what comedy is. And right. uh, I always thought that was really spot on. You know, I think the culture there, first of all, like, you know, my best friend, Maddie Goldberg, and I uh, met there. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a lifelong friendship. He was uh, one of the best men at my wedding. You know, he introduced me and my wife. Uh, he's there uh, not when my child was born, but a, a few weeks later, he came by to meet the baby, you know. But we talk on the phone every day, and we both got our asses handed to us by the comics at the New York Comedy Club. They would rip on us mercilessly 
night after night for years. That's how we built our chops, you know? Right, right. You know, and uh, yeah, Maddie's in a New York Comedy Club institution. Yeah, the culture there really made us tough and it made us funny. And it yeah, was, yeah, and yeah. It wasn't a pretty place, you know. It was a very hardcore room, and um, you know that's that's the kind of places where you get your chops. You know, it's mm-hmm. not you're not necessarily doing your final TV uh, five minutes or TV four minutes or six minutes. You're doing a set to be able to perfect what's going to be on that TV six minutes. That's going to be in a in a different club somewhere. I loved it. Those are some of the happiest days of my life when I look back on them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Carefree, you know, and a completely different time. You know, that club back in the day, before we renovated it, it had a renovated. That's funny that that place was actually renovated. Imagine <laughs> what it looked like before that. But it had, uh, it was, when I took it over, it was an Argentinian steakhouse that went out of business mm-hmm. with a real old school charcoal um, grill stove in there. And before we would start our shift, I'd stop at some good meat markets and just pick up some big ribeye steaks or or burgers, and we, you know, just have a whole party in that place. At like five, six o'clock at night before we started for the night. Wow. And we would just cook up a storm in that kitchen. Well, when I, I got there, it was a, a George Foreman grill. I don't know what happened to that grill. <laughs> it sounds like. Well, I'll tell you what happened to it. It's funny. When we added extra seating uh-huh. somewhere uh, in the late 90s, it was, so you know, talk about, you know, the Al Martin shortcuts. It mm-hmm. was so expensive to dismantle that whole grill and get it out of there mm-hmm. that I just decided to build a platform right over it <laughs> and completely entomb it. <laughs> so probably the new owners are not even aware that they have a full kitchen underneath there. <laughs> is that under the stage uh, or is that with no, the back uh, seating? If you're, uh, it's that back seating right? Uh, on the, like if you're standing on the stage, if you're looking at the stage, stage right, all the way in that corner mm-hmm. that looks out towards the front bar area. Yeah. Under there, <laughs> there is a, a full, a full ass, uh, uh, stove. I should have been uh, more and, curious and, about why that was raised. Yeah. And I'm not sure the yeah. vent might be under a drop ceiling. So it might yeah. be, uh, on top of the drop ceiling. So, <laughs> They probably have a fully functional kitchen there, <laughs> but but I wanted more seating at the time. So, yeah. you know, I ca- I did the calculation. Hey, what do we make on food, and what do we, um, you know, what can we, what, what do we uh, make on extra seats? And I said we make a lot more money on extra seats. So yeah, <laughs> that thing got covered. <laughs> yeah, I I mean, yeah, and then started the George Foreman grill era. Yes, <laughs> and 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 Steve Aaron. Uh, is he still with you, Steve Aaron? Steve Aaron still produces uh, the Steve Aaron's show, which I think you had done quite a bit back in well, the day. He brought me into it, you know. Uh, for the listeners, I, I I don't know how to describe Steve Aaron in a. I'll just do it. Uh, he's a, he was like a a very old crotchety, uh, like a old school New York gay guy, right? Yeah. And he talked. A crotchety old queen. Yeah, that's. I think that's how he would describe himself. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he would he would talk like this. I mean, he really sounded like all joy was was sucked out of him at some point in his life. <laughs> and he'd get and he'd get right in your face, right? Yes. Spitting food while he was talking. Always. To you. Oh my gosh. He's the one who got He's me. He's banned now with coron- with coronavirus. <laughs> Somebody would assassinate him if he tried to talk to them because he he gets up so close. He, he'll be banned with talks. me too, also. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I found out years later he had issues there. You know. <laughs> I want to join me. <laughs> But I was, you know, I'll tell you one funny Steve Aaron story. I was, uh, I might have mentioned in the book, I don't even know, but I was, I was having dinner with my family at Sammy's Romanian Steakhouse in um, the Lower East Side. And a lot of your stories start a, out in steakhouses, I'm noticing. Yeah, they all do, right? <laughs> I, I can't help it. <laughs> and um, I'm having dinner uh, with the family. Uh-huh. And he calls me up about something, and he made some kind of really stupid decision. So I turned around to my, and I just had it. It was like the fifth stupid thing he did in a row, <laughs> where he doesn't follow instructions sometimes. Yeah. So I told my family, excuse me, I'll be back in about 20 minutes. I have to run somewhere. A little emergency. I, I caught a cab. I went to the New York Comedy Club. I walked in the door, and I yelled at him. I said, you're out moron you're a real idiot you know uh-huh. blah 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 blah. i just went off on him uh-huh. and i said to him you're fired uh-huh. and i said just lock the door tonight and let me know where i can pick up the keys tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> who the hell fires somebody and then lets them close out the night you know? <laughs> <laughs> it was like the 20th time i think i fired him. yeah i was gonna say so, i remember him being fired like on a daily basis at one point yeah, he was fired quite a bit. Yeah, and then uh, and then I would take him back, and then you know, and, and look at that. Like twenty years later, we're still I'm still talking about Steve Aaron at the at the club. So I mean, he's he's a legendary yeah. character. You can't. Uh... Yeah, yeah, and you know what? A lot of times, uh, Danny, I I tell my kid who uh, uh, used to be gay because actually she used to be a, a gay guy that liked guys. Now she's transgendered, mm-hmm. so she's now a woman that st- still likes guys. Okay, so now she's straight, <laughs> which <laughs> she totally can't figure out. But I said, you know, if it wasn't for people like Steve Aaron's, mm-hmm. you know, fighting the fights that he did, you know, in the seventies and sixties, you know, you would, uh, you know, you wouldn't have a lot of the respect and the rights that you have today. It was guys like him that really paved the battle, and 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 took a lot of crap and 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 were beat up incessantly and and fought the fight for, for people like my kid to to be more uh, accepted and tolerated. Yeah, so. only Steve wasn't beat up for being gay. It was probably more for his act. <laughs> <laughs> Quick impression of a New Yorker asking for privacy. Oh. <laughs> That's a very good impression, and uh, yes, a very good memory. Marin's <laughs> all right. So, the book yeah, we had a lot of characters: Steve Aaron's, Ozzy Baez, the May Rest. Oh Steve. yeah, I remember his his uh, memorial service in the little room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He didn't even make the big room for his memorial service. Huh? <laughs> 
Well, it's hard to move up at the New York Comedy Club. I mean, (laughs) when we have a show that made more money than his memorial, that's probably what happened. Oh my gosh! (laughs) Well, the book is called "I Did It on a Dare" and how I how I created a comedy empire in thirty short years. And uh, it's I'm imagining it's kind of part of the story we're talking about, right? Yeah, I basically started it on a dare. I was dating a girl. Uh, who was a stand-up comic, Mm -hmm. in her opinion. And (laughs) she invited me to a a mic, and she asked me what I thought. I told her I thought you were wonderful. You know, I thought you were great. You know, as we always want to tell women when we want to get lucky later on. And, Uh you know, so, you know, she said, (laughs) oh, really, really, tell me really what you think. And I couldn't take it anymore. And I said, um... You suck. You're really bad. You're really not good. You know, and then, then she said to me, oh, really? And then we wound up in a 10-minute fight. And then she turned around and said to me, she turned around and said to me, you know what? If you think you're that funny, I, I think you're pretty funny with your comebacks. Uh-huh. Why don't you get on stage, wise guy? Uh-huh. Hence the dare. I did it on a dare. So that's why you became a comic. That's right. It was based on that first night I went on stage. And even though it was um, a, a disaster for me, mm-hmm. um, you know, we wound up, uh, it, it, you know, I, I didn't do well. I met a bunch of people that I really liked and I thought they were interesting. And then they started telling me about where other open mics were. And the next thing I knew, I was I was on the comedy circuit. So where, know, where was that comedy. first? Where was that first show? That first show, believe it or not, was at Pips in Brooklyn. They had a great Wednesday open mic. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, then after that, I started uh, breaking in at a place called the Eagle Tavern on 14th Street and 9th Avenue, which ironically was right around the corner from a big club that opened up uh, somewhere in the 90s, late 90s, I think, uh, called Comics. Remember Comics? Oh, yeah. So comics opened up in an old supermarket around the corner, but um, a place where a lot of us broke in, uh, Judah Friedlander, myself, uh, Sarah Silverman, uh, a number of comics broke in at the Eagle Tavern. It was run by a guy called Tim Davis. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever heard of him. No. Uh, he looked like Andre the Giant, and his nickname was Andre. Okay. And, uh, you know, we... Um, we wound up uh, going over there and uh, performing. And then again, met more people who told me about other places. And before I knew it, I was like totally involved in stand-up comedy. Now, when did you meet Chris uh, Long Red-Haired Murphy? I met Chris Murphy at the Eagle Tavern. He was also one of the comics uh, hanging out there. Mm-hmm. He was already doing open mics a couple of years when I met him. Yeah, And then... Um, he eventually uh, did some spots in another room that I started to uh, actually produce. And then once I moved over that operation to New York Comedy Club, Chris was somehow hanging around there all the time. And the next thing I knew, Chris was a shift manager at the Improv on uh, 44th and 9th. And he eventually started telling a lot of the comics that hung out there that, hey, there's this really cool little room that op- opened up on 2nd and 48th that gets a good audience. 
why don't you guys start coming down? And he started bringing down guys like David Tell, Louis C.K., um, uh, Brett Butler, at the time a guy named Mike Ivey. Uh, he's Mike's big. Well, actually, Mike's now in L.A., so you might see him out there once in a while. Okay. I don't know if you know him or heard of him, yeah. but uh, a lot of these guys uh, uh, started working over there. Uh, Bill Hicks was a regular, Liz Winstead, and um, Henriette Mantel. So a lot of these comics uh, came over from the improv. Mark Cohen, mm-hmm. who now I think um, is, does a lot of the MC work at this, the Comedy Cellar in Vegas. But um, a lot of these guys came over from the improv and would do sets. Randy Credico, Dan Vitale, you know, mm-hmm. um, we had a, a real good group of comics. Um, Mike Reynolds, may he rest in peace. And these guys all started uh, working the room. And um, and then you, uh, you and Chris Murphy, I bring him up because you guys have been like uh, best buddies ever since, right? Yeah, 30 years, 30 wow. years. Uh you know, and he's one of the few people I really do trust in comedy, him uh, and Steve Marshall, um, because, you know, these guys were my friends before uh, uh, I had anything to offer. Mm-hmm. A guy named Dave LaBarker. All these guys would give me spots, even though I was an inept comedian myself. You know, they would, they would give me an opportunity. They would give me a, a, a shot. And um, yeah, you didn't do too bad as a comic. I remember seeing your set on Evening at the Improv. Right. Yeah. Ninety four. That you must know, have been I, a pretty I, exciting break, right? Well, how did, that was. Tell that, me. That tell me that a, story. That was a very exciting break. Um, basically, um, I I knew a guy who was working at New York Comedy Club uh, by the name of Bob Golub, and. Uh, Bob had gone out to L.A. uh, somewhere around 92, I think, 93. And he, uh, you know, was working a lot of the clubs out there and, you know, did very well. And he got friendly with um, the the booker of the Improv at the time, which was a guy named Ross Mark. And Ross also booked Evening at the Improv. Is is he the same Ross of uh, Bob and Ross from The Tonight Show? That's right. That's right. Same Bob and Ross from uh, Last Comic Standing. I've got a funny story Uh, about that, but I'll tell you at at, at the end of your story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, I sent uh, my video in, and uh, they liked it. And, uh, you know, they invited me out. And it was an incredible couple of weeks because... The week before, I think I did Evening at the Improv, I wound up working the Improv in Vegas, which was insane. It was 21 shows a week, three shows a night, seven nights a week, but it was an easy gig. You only did 10 minutes a show or 15 minutes a show, but the problem was that you had to be there, um, I think a half hour before each show, and then you had to stay there and sign T-shirts after the show was over. The comics would sign mm-hmm. T-shirts so they can get some merchandise, merchandise sales. So you would the first show would probably be like I think like seven o'clock. So you had to be there at six thirty, and you didn't get out of there till about eleven o'clock at night. So you really didn't you didn't get to enjoy much of the nightlife in Vegas until real late. Yeah. And the guy who ran that room at the Riviera, the food and beverage uh, guy, was uh, a guy who went on to fame in The Sopranos. His name was Steve Sharippa. Ah, wow. Yeah. Uh, so, 
uh, Steve uh, uh, wound up, uh, he was the manager of that room, and he literally scared the crap out of me when I first came in there. Cause <laughs> he really had this tough Brooklyn persona, you know, and, um, you know, it made me feel very nervous. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, yeah, so then I did that that club for a week, and it was really one of my, I had very simple goals. I wanted to be up in lights in Vegas, up in lights in Atlantic City, and on national TV, and then I'd be ready to retire. You know, I didn't really have, you know, um, sitcom uh, thoughts in me or anything like that. Right. And then um, I wound up um, uh, the next week, next week traveling to LA and hanging out there for about a week, and then doing evening at the Improv, which was another exciting moment in my career. And by that time, I'd already accomplished everything because earlier on, I worked in uh, Atlantic City, mm-hmm. um, uh, one of the casinos there for a week. And uh, so, so I was ready to retire. That's it. I'm done. <laughs> That's it. Thank you and good night. <laughs> I'll tell you, when Bob and Ross came to the New York Comedy Club, I remember it was like a big uh, a big thing. We were all preparing our uh, sets in hopes of getting on the, the Tonight Show with Jay Leno. Right, right. They booked the Tonight Show. Well, yeah, you know what? I completely forgot about that. Yes. It, so it was a uh, it was an industry showcase that I was on at the New York Comedy Club. We were all right. young and hopeful and excited. Maybe we we're getting on the Tonight Show, and it was. Uh, I'll tell you who was on it. It was uh, me, Dan Natterman, Steve Ahrens, Maddie Goldberg. Uh, Rio, remember Rio? I love Rio. Yes, it turned out Rio was a ballroom dancer. That was his day thing. Did no you know that? No kidding. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. Spoke two words of English. And now he speaks. He speaks better English than you and I. I saw him one day. You know, I used to like kind of. I don't know why, but when you meet Asian people, like sometimes you start talking in an Asian type of. <laughs> Dialect like, you know, whole time, yeah. That might just and be he's you. Looking at me, and he's looking at me saying, How you doing, Al? How's everything? Pretty good. <laughs> like, when did that happen? Oh wow. Oh, it it's twenty years since you've seen me. Yeah. So I'm doing it right now. <laughs> but he speaks really good English. Well he didn't back then. No, he didn't. He didn't speak any English. Maddie and I but, always joke that I think the only English he knew was his act. <laughs> <Just memorized laughs> so it was. Uh, I'll tell you, we've had some really funny Asian comedians through the years. Right? Yeah, at, at, we we had one. I think she's based out in L.A. now. Um, I think she was with Sam Kinison for a while, two years ago. Her name was Tamayo uh, Tamayo Asuki, I think. Oh yeah, I've met her. Yeah. You met her? Oh yeah. my god, she was so funny back in the in the early nineties and stuff. She would crush that room. Well, I'm gonna go back to my, used to have, yeah, my Bob yeah. and Bob and Ross story because I think you'll yeah. like this. Yeah, uh, and uh, Greg Rogel was there that night too, and maybe okay. Rob Azanari. So, um, and maybe Janice Machete Massetti was on that show too. Anyway. Probably. Greg Rogel's going up to everybody. We're all in our head trying to go over our five minutes, you know, to try and get on the Tonight Show. And Greg Rogel goes, uh, hey, you know, you guys, uh, we're all sitting at the bar at the New York Comedy Club. He goes, you guys aren't getting it. You go, what? And I remember Steve was especially like, uh, 
Okay, Greg. You're not getting it. You think you're getting it? You're not getting it. Nobody here's getting it. You just go up to, go up to everybody. Why is that? Hey, buddy, you think, you, you think you're going to get it? And we all be like, oh, maybe I get Nah, you're not getting it. They're not booking anybody from this club. You're not getting it. You're not getting it. And you're not getting it. And he just went around everybody, <laughs> crushing everybody's hopes. Why the fuck would he do that? <laughs> hey, Steve, you think you're getting it? I'm, I'm working on it. They don't want you. Okay, buddy? No, they don't want you. The Tonight Show don't want you. <laughs> but what, what possessed him to do that to people? Just for fun. Oh, he was right. Nobody, nobody got it. Nobody got it? Nobody but he got, got it. it. Well, I mean, he had already gotten it, I think. Did he really? And he was one of the youngest people to get on that show. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, I, I remember him being, I remember being there the night he either shot it. No, I wasn't there the night he shot the Tonight Show. I was there. Oh yeah. Yeah. I was there at afterwards when he came back, when he did the set Uh and then he was hanging out at the improv and he was kind of chain smoking back then too. Actually, we, we were outside the improv. and telling him how 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 great you know the set was and everything. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I think because they aired it at the club, uh, and um, you know, he was really young at the time when he did it. And he's gone on to really good stuff. I was I, I always thought he was very funny, but I didn't realize he said that to everybody and crushed everybody's poor dreams that night. <laughs> Another good one Maddie told me was with Rio and, and Greg Rogel. Uh, Rio, yeah. Rio went up to Greg Rogel one night. And uh, this one, uh, I don't think I was there for. But at a certain point, and you hear a story so many times, you think you might have been. But I think Maddie relayed this one to me. That uh, Greg was at the bar at New York Comedy Club. And Rio comes up to him and says, uh, how how I get to agent? And Greg goes, Asian? You are an Asian, buddy. What do you need an Asian for? No. You are an Asian, buddy. A- agent. Agent. I want an agent. But I keep telling you, you are. Look in the mirror. You're an Asian. You don't need an Asian. <laughs> oh, that guy's a piece of work. Oh, my gosh. I could just see that conversation. I wish I would have watched that conversation. That was funny. Yeah. That sounds funny. The Dove Davidoff, Gianni. I mean, there was a good cast of characters back then. Yeah, yeah. I'm no fan of Dove Davidoff. I'll tell you that. But, well, no, um, you guys had a falling out or something. Uh, well, you know, I had a falling out and didn't know it. You know, so that yeah. those are always the interesting ones. You know, uh, I've had a bunch when, of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like uh, you know, I run into him one day on the street over at um, at uh, Boston Comedy Club, uh-huh. and he's friendly to me, you know, like, really, hey, Al, how you doing? How's everything? Like, you know, I got to get over there in New York. And, you know, this is when he was already starting to get a little bit of, you know, whatever heat he was getting. What is he famous for now? Is he famous for anything? Or I'm not aware of it. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I guess in his mind he's bigger than he is. But, you know, then I find out, like, three days later, he was at this comedy union meeting, like they were formulating a... um. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, excuse me for one. Comedy. <laughs> Sorry. A comedy coalition. 
I remember and, when that uh, all went down, yeah. Oh, yeah, so you remember that? And apparently he was at the meeting, according to a number of people, like really trashing and vilifying me, you know? Uh-huh. And um, That must have been hurtful for you. Yeah, it was very hurtful for me when I heard he was going off on it because I never did anything to the guy. I was like, shot, you yeah. know? And there were like a couple other people that were regularly working for me. And I'm saying to myself, well, why are they so angry at me? Like, why me? You know? And, and mm-hmm. I can understand being angry at me and all the other club owners. Mm-hmm. But they were angry at me specifically, a lot of people. So I couldn't. So, so let me give the I background really to the listeners on what we're talking about. This was uh, yes. in the early 2000s, I think. Uh, yes. A, a few yes. comics got together in uh, 2003. Yeah. Yeah. Something called the Comedy Coalition, which was uh, the, 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 the goal of it was to raise the amount of money that comics get for a set uh, in, a, in a club in the city. And uh, they, they felt they, I guess, the, the rate, the, Pay hadn't gone up since the 80s and all these clubs. And if they all got together, they could uh, push the club owners to to raise their pay. And uh, they had a meeting somewhere. Um, I, I guess they achieved the goal of raising the the pay. But it must have been a tough thing for you. It must have been a very hurtful thing because here yeah, you were helping out all these thing. people. And, uh, you know, it, when money gets involved... Uh, people turn on each other right yeah yeah i mean what really at the end of the day what wound up happening was you know they were threatening to picket any club that didn't go along with a raise and uh you know it was interesting because none of them that were heading this whole thing were going to be the ones walking the picket line it was going to be a bunch of younger comics who were probably not yet working the club that were going to do the grunt work Mm -hmm. And when all was said and done and they got their raise, now every comedian in New York thought that these four or five people will fix every injustice that ever occurred to them, Mm -hmm. you know, in their comedy career. And these four or five guys were getting swamped with, you know, complaints about any perceived mistreatment. Mm -hmm. I got to a club 30 minutes late and they bumped me, you know, or whatever. Right. Now, these, these these five guys just wanted to work on their stand-up and get better and maybe make a few extra bucks for themselves. They didn't want to get into a whole official union thing here, you know? And, uh, and after a while, it became a little overwhelming, and I think the whole thing sort of, like, fell apart. But really, all it accomplished at the end was getting a few of the really good comics extra money. I don't think it trickled down to anybody in the lower ranks, unless they eventually work the city club. And I think all a lot of the clubs did to make up with it for it was maybe to cut a spot on the show or cut a spot at night, you know, so. Well, I think this is a good point uh, to, to sort of pivot to where you went from uh, being an employee to being an employer. Uh, yes. And you started the, was the New York Comedy Club the first club that you started? Yes, that was yes, your that was, was your original baby. So, so I want to hear that story a little bit, if you don't mind. Well, basically, um, uh, and a lot of it is in the book, but just to give you the highlights, um, I was producing a one night a week show uh, at um, a restaurant in Manhattan, right near Grand Central, where I did everything. I was I would bark outside of Grand Central as people got off the trains mm-hmm. on a Saturday night to figure out what they were going to do. Uh, I would be right there at comedy tonight, starting in a half hour or whatever. Uh, and myself and a couple other comics, 
and we would uh, bark in an audience. And uh, one night, the uh, operators of the venue had decided they didn't want to do any more stand-up comedy or any produced shows because the night before they had a big incident, a riot take place on a on a reggae show they did. So <laughs> they, they just threw us out with the bathwater, and on about an hour's notice, I had to go running looking for another place. And I found a place on 2nd and 48th that had a second floor that nothing was doing that night. And I just basically told a guy, listen, I could bring in about, you know, 30, 40 people. Um, you know, would that be okay with you in that second floor room? You got nothing going on. And she was so excited. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. We need to yeah, well, be great. We're not busy here tonight, you know? And, um, that was the beginning of a five year run. You know, at that so location. What separated you from the many people that ran a room uh, where you wound up to uh, go on and open up your own club? Why didn't, you know, a hundred people ran rooms at least in New York, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so how were fact, you able to, to do what they weren't able to do? How were you able to pivot pivot into, into owning a club? Well, I was very blessed in that one of the things I did do right for a brief period of time in my life was I um, studied marketing in college, and uh, that was my that was my major, business administration, and I got a degree in marketing. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, basically, I just really applied a lot of marketing techniques that I learned uh, in college and applied it to stand up comedy. Such as you know, and that's using those techniques. That's how we developed. New York's first African-American comedy show, New York's mm -hmm. first Latino comedy show. We developed a variety show for singers. We did a gay comedy show. So we were doing all of these. We were the first ones doing any of these shows because if you know anything about the history of New York in those days, comedy, there was only like five or six clubs and they were all doing the same thing. Everybody was on the same nine o'clock show. There was, there was no new talent shows at seven o'clock, there was none of that stuff. So you were the beginnings and of diversity in comedy. That's uh... that, that's right. Now you know I will never forget going to the Montreal Comedy Festival one year, and they were talking about diversity uh, in stand-up comedy, and there were a number of people on the panel, uh, all the the big mockers, big shots of comedy at the time, mm -hmm. uh, and they asked them, "What do you think of these little clubs?" Uh, Carrie Hoffman got up and asked the question. What do you think of this little club in my city that's opening up doing an African-American comedy night? Do you think this will be a trend? Mm -hmm. And those people all sat up on that stage and there's no need for that trend. Everybody mm -hmm. can do the same show, uh, um, uh, um, uh, a single show, homogenous show, and um, we don't have to have separate shows for every group in the world. And now fast forward 25 years or so later, Every comedy club in the country has a chocolate Sunday, you mm -hmm. know, or a show, right? Or uh, you know, uh, salsa Sundays, you know. Uh, right. So, so um, you know, it was these kind of techniques that really made the New York. And we were hungry, and we had a hungry group of people. You know, the African American show, we got Seymour um, uh, Swan, and for the Latino show, we had Ozzy Bias. These were all people I met along the way starting out. Mm -hmm. And a lot of clubs did not give any of us a chance to perform on their stages. So we were all hungry 
to make New York Comedy Club stage a successful one. That's why New York Comedy and, Club was was so at home for me. It was like the spot for the outcasts. You know, I thought it was like very yes, punk was, rock. Uh, you know. It was the animal house of comedy, really. Yeah. You know, if you, you know really. Like, I would go to the comic strip for a little while because um, Richie Tinkin let me do uh, late night there. And it was like all the prep school kids, I felt. Like I would come from the New York Comedy Club where I felt like I fit in with all these animals. And you get to right, the, the right. culture at the comic strip, and it was just like it totally different. I was such like, an outsider, you know? Yeah. It was just like Animal House. Mm-hmm. Exactly like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it was. We were we were the the messed up frat house, and all the other clubs were the you know like you said the uh, the the people that were popular in high school you right. know the the you jocks know, um, and the prep school kids yeah the jocks the 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 nerd yeah we were the we were the mess it was and, uh, yeah I didn't know it because it was the first place I really parked myself but I didn't realize that I was in the craziest of them all. And whenever I went anywhere else, it kind of ruined me for everywhere else because I was expecting the same kind of mayhem and madness. I mean, anything went at the New York Comedy Club. I I mean, just to give you an example of something, I remember Dove Davidoff used to put his penis in a hot dog bun on the tray with all the other hot dogs. And he'd go around and try and serve it to a hot girl. I mean, this is also (laughs) way before the Me Too era. But you know, not not a well person. I wish I knew that story for the book. That would have been unbelievable. And it's crazy <laughs> there. It was nuts. I should probably do a part two of all the wacky things that occurred at at my venues on nights that I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget one night where I was working the front door. Ozzy was sick, mm-hmm. and uh, he usually worked Tuesday, uh, Wednesday nights, and I would uh, I was covering from that night. We couldn't find anybody else. Uh, Steve Irons was at a bathhouse or something <laughs> busy and uh, yeah. I covered the shift. So uh, this girl walks in and she goes, um, I'm uh, I'm up next. And I go, who are you? <laughs> she goes, I'm so-and-so. I go, well, I don't know who you are. I booked the room. And she goes, where's Ozzy? He, he, you know, he's the owner of the place. You might book it, but he's the owner. Mm-hmm. I go, Ozzy's the owner? She goes, yeah, he's, he told me he's the owner. He books the place, and I've been coming here every Wednesday for the last year. <laughs> I go, well, you know, uh, Ozzy sold me the place. I'm the owner now. Just get out of here. He would have told me that. I go, well, call him up. Tell him Al Martin's at the front door, mm-hmm. and he says he bought the club from you. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> so they all had their own little... Yeah, world going on over there. <laughs> did, did did you invent the bringer show? Yes, unfortunately or fortunately, I did invent the bringer show. Um, I mean, there were little variations of it here and there, but I kind of, I kind of really perfected it in mm-hmm. a way. And and you know, listen, I talk about that in the book a lot more and uh, more than uh, I get into here now with you. But basically. It was simple. There were a couple of guys hanging out at the club one night. And they asked me, you know, are we ever going to be able to get on your lineup? And I said, well, one day you might, but you're nowhere near ready now. You know, just look out who's on stage. Uh, you got you got Mike Royce, you got Todd Barry, you got David Pell, you got Louis C.K. and Bill Hicks. 
which mm-hmm. one of you, uh, which one of those comics are you bumping tonight? You know, mm-hmm. uh, they were all basically doing open mics and they said to me, and really it was their idea. They said to me, well, if we put together our own show earlier in the night, uh, or at another time spot and we brought our own audience, would you do the show? And I said, why not? If I don't have anything else going on, of course you could do a show. And then it got me thinking after a while, I said, Hey, there might be a lot of people like this that can't make the lineup, you know, and want to go up. Now there are two arguments on this. Some people say this is very exploitive of Mm -hmm. comedians where I choose to say one simple question. If every comedy club in New York city right now, stopped doing bringer shows, do you think you're making their nine o'clock lineup anyway? Mm-hmm. It was a Probably way in. Not. It was a way in. We all did them. I got it. You know, Steve Aaron right. got me to do bringer shows there. That's uh, right. Yeah. And listen, there are, and I'm going to tell you right now, there are people that made it as comedians not doing bringer shows. Mm-hmm. You know, Jim Gaffigan is one that comes to mind. He was the worst bringer in the world, at least for me. He never brought an audience. Right. But somehow he persevered. He did enough open mics and he did enough various ways of getting up on stage and he made it, you know, there's a lot of things you can do. You can produce your own show. Like I did, you can create right. your own open mic and trade off spots. You can, you can intern, you can bark people in. I mean, there's a lot of stuff if you're willing, you know, right. uh, to hustle to get off Mike Machete. This guy traveled three hours a day each way to get, you know, a few minutes on stage and, you know, he's achieved far more than he would have ever thought he would have done mm-hmm. in, in, in stand-up comedy. So, yeah. you know, the thing is, is that people, um, you know, right away say it's exploitive, it's this and that, and really use it as you will. I'll, you, I'll you tell might. you what I think. I remember when I was young into it, I really resented them. But uh, one day it dawned on me that everyone's a bringer. Either you're bringing people because you're a draw, or you're bringing people right. because you have something to offer. I mean, or you're barking people in, you're still bringing, right? There's there's no one Absolutely. who's not a bringer. Uh, Every, do you think so? that Andrew Dice Clay is going to work Madison Square Garden for 20,000 people unless he could bring 20,000 people? I think in the early days of comedy when you didn't have that many comedians, uh you know, you didn't have the need for a bringer because people were, you know, comedy was new. People were excited to see what it was going to be, and uh, they would just come out for that. They were excited. The novelty of it was right. was the draw. Then right. when she started I mean, developing people who were like bigger names and stars, they became the draw, and you had more and more people. You couldn't put everyone on a lineup, like you said. So it right. sort of created the necessity for it, whether you like it or not. Uh, I, right. I understand right. it. And anybody who and gets listen. stuck doing endless bringer shows, that that's a sign. You know, you're not working hard enough. You're not getting funny enough. You need to figure it out. I mean, I went from doing bringers to standing in Times Square in the in the heat and the cold, handing out flyers yeah. for Joe Franklin's. Right. I mean, you do what exactly. you, if you want it, you go for it. You go after it, and you you make it happen. Um, here here's exactly. the exploitive to to talk the exploitive thing, and I'm I'm not saying this in a critical way, but I kind of look back at it as a funny thing is that I think uh, you had like a million people working, like an army of people working for stage time. And, right, uh, right. Yeah, there's like yeah, people, yeah. you know, doing non... Uh, but Danny, think yeah. about it. Is that any different than 
a journalism student taking a summer internship at the New York Times. Oh, or, no, I mean, know, I did uh, it for the Colbert Report at an internship, right. and they had me working way harder than the New York Comedy Club for, for no money. Right, exactly. And they didn't exactly. even put me on so, TV. But uh, Exactly. <laughs> but so, you guys, you, you would know, put people whole- on stage. But here's what I wanted to get to, because I'm not being critical of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, you yeah. used to have a, a whole army of, of hopeful comics doing things, cleaning the bathroom, cooking something, whatever, doing whatever they could to get stage time. And I'm going to admit something to you right now. And yeah. it's long enough ago that I think it's okay. I used to call in, there was an avails line at New York Comedy Club, and you could call in your avails, and right. uh, you could say, hey, I'm available Monday night for the, or Tuesday night or whatever for this show or that show to get a spot. And if you were right. doing work for, for you, for Al, you'd say, hey, you know, I'm uh, one of the interns of the comedy club. I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I'm you know, I sweeped up or whatever it is. Uh, so I'd like right. to, to do a show. I started calling up as fake comedians on the avail line. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I would well, get you know what? such a kick out of here and you put a fake name on the line. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I got to tell you, uh, kudos to you. Thank you. You out a way <laughs> to get your stage time and to beat the system, you know? Well, I wasn't getting the stage I, time, but I always knew if I hung out on the night when the fake comedian was on the lineup and he wasn't going to show up. There's always a chance. Right. Right. So, yeah. So there you go. I mean, that's the thing you, you, you have to be innovative. And I tell people, don't, don't take the attitude. Oh, it's exploitative. I'm never going to do that. You never say never in this business because you don't know what could help you. Like what if you have five friends in town one weekend? So you go to, you do a spot, it's a, it's a lot better than sitting in some of these bar shows and doing a circle jerk and performing for the same 10 people every week <laughs> that are hanging out there. Yeah. You know, at least, you know, at least you're getting up in front of it. It should be part of your arsenal. Yeah. You know, if you want to bark and get stage time one night a week, bark. You know, you want to intern one one or two nights a week, you intern. Right. You want to run your own mic another night, great. Do what you have to do to get on stage. If you have a better way, go for it, right? Right. And the dirty secret is all these people that want the the, the new talent, first of all, it's none of your business. If you don't want to do a new talent show, you don't want to do a bring your show, fine, don't do it. Mm -hmm. There are other people that, you know, work in a law firm or work in police officers, whatever, and they got a hundred friends they want to bring to a show. John DeResta, I remember him, you know, uh, he used to be one of the great bringers of all time when he first started. He had a shitload of friends that he would bring mm-hmm. to, to shows, you know, so. Um, I think it's you, good you training little- for where you want to be. You want to bring an audience to the club, whether you're calling them yourself or they see your name and they come. Uh, that's what you want to be. You don't want to be somebody who's anonymously on the lineup. Nobody's there to see and nobody wants to know about, right? You want to be somebody that people want to see for whatever the reason. So I don't think it's looking back at it. You know, I think it's, uh, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. So exactly. So that's it. I mean, you know, it should be part of a, of, of your arsenal of things you do. And the funny thing is if every comedy club in Manhattan today stopped doing those shows, half of them would go out of business, mm-hmm. literally. Yeah. And so everything you're working for to become good enough to make those clubs, 
half of them won't be there. So half your opportunities will be eliminated mm-hmm. without the new talent show. So if you can't do a new talent show, don't do it. But don't try to have them eliminated, you know, because it's just, you know, it's maybe helping other people that want to do it and have the, I always find the people that call bringer shows exploitive are the people that can't bring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. If you can bring, you're happy doing them because let's face it, there's nothing better than getting up on a stage with a, a hundred people. Now, are there some exploitive shows? Yeah, things I don't like about some shows. One, the person who brings in 75 people should not go in last. You know, mm-hmm. that's bullshit, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something I think is disgusting. Um, there should be a rollover but, point system. Like if you brought 75 people, you should be able to like get on 10 shows going forward. Well, whatever. Well, first of all, you know, that I always say, why do a bringer show when you have to bring 15 people when you can bring a, do a bringer show that maybe you bring six or seven right. and you can do double the amount of people with the same amount of friends. So mm-hmm. you got to be smart, you know, uh, and we talk about some of these things in the book, but you have to, you know, kind of be smart in the beginning. And a lot of comics, not that they're stupid or ignorant, they just don't know some of these things, you know, that you they learn have to about really life do. through comedy. You really do. You learn about all of life. You learn about business. You learn about how the world works. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's a real. You know, I grew up in it. I grew up in it. So I, it's how I learned about the world. There's, right. Exactly. There's, there's so many uh, things to get to, and we're almost out of time here for the hour. But uh, I want to I want to fast forward. I was there when you opened the Improv. I remember that. Uh, yes. You reopened the improv in New York, and then I guess there was a lawsuit, and you changed the name to the Broadway Comedy Club, which is still there, and uh, from what I understand, doing fantastic. And uh, and then you opened up a, a, another club in, in Greenwich, uh, right. which is called the Greenwich, Greenwich Club. club. Uh, it's called the Village Comedy Club? Uh, Greenwich Village Comedy uh, Club. Right. And then I remember yeah. I, I performed with Corey Kahaney at your uh, show in Bo- at your club in Boca Raton at the New York Comedy Club, which was a fantastic club. Right. I mean, uh, it, it's really been uh, cool getting to watch your success and, and, and watch you build up this empire. And the book looks fascinating. I can't wait to read it. It says it's got fantastic stories here about uh, Sarah Silverman and uh, Lisa Lampanelli and, uh, and a bunch of others here. Is there one story that uh, you want to share with the audience? Just give them a taste of what's in the book. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, uh, this, is, this is a small one, but, you know, I don't want to give up the big ones. <laughs> People will go get the book. But um, one of the small, one of the stories we used to do, as I said earlier, New York's top African-American comedy shows. And I was looking over one of the lineups one night, and we had on the same show, imagine this, we had Damon Wayans, Tracy Morgan, Wanda Sykes, and then we had this young comedian come in um, that everybody kind of made fun of. He was a short little guy, and they were really like razzing him. Kevin Hart? That's right. Exactly. Kevin Hart. He was doing more acting at the time, and his manager brought him in. He was just starting as a stand-up comic, and he wanted to try stand-up comedy. And, but then he would come in every week after that, and it just got better, you know. But in the mm-hmm. beginning, the other comics sort of were giving him the business a little bit because, you know, he's one of those guys that maybe they felt, hey, we're working hard as a comic and coming up the ranks, and 
And now this guy's manager is just trying to shove him on a lineup. But, you know, at the end of the day, he proved to become the most famous of them all, money-wise. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I did a commercial with him last year in L.A. here, and uh, he was a real real terrific guy. I got to talk to him a little bit about our old friend Patrice O'Neill, and he was, yeah. a, he was a very sweet guy, very professional. You could tell he's really on the ball. Yeah, Kevin Hart was always a very nice, very drama-free kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Came in, did his spot, had a big smile on his face always, and you know, didn't didn't create a lot of controversy. Yeah, yeah, he seemed he seems uh, to be that type of guy. Still. You know, yeah. Whereas you know, you get comics that every time they come in, it's like controversy. This is one of the things I basically say. You know, just I rather book somebody that's eighty percent funny than someone who's a hundred percent funny if they're not as much drama. You know, if you get a guy who's 100% funny, like a great, great, super great comic, but every time you see him, you want to, like, you, you get nauseous, versus someone who's maybe 80% as funny but never drama, give me the 80% guy any time. And one thing I always admired about you is your loyalty to your friends. You know, I mentioned uh, Chris Murphy and then Mike King, who uh, you, you put on stage all the time, these guys that you started out with that uh, knew you forever and uh, you were always there for them. And I always I thought that was a great trait about you. It wasn't, you weren't Thank only you. about, uh, you know, the business of it. There was a lot of heart in what you did as well. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think because I was blessed with the fact that I was a comic myself at one time and, you know, a lot of, a lot of guys, uh, there were, I don't think, I don't think there were any other people at that time operating a comedy club that um, were comedians. The only other one that I can think of, uh, and he had worked for me and then left to open Gotham was Chris Mazzilli. Yeah. And even Chris uh, didn't really stick with comedy long after that. You know, once Mm -hmm. he got involved in Gotham, he pretty much dedicated, you know, everything to making that place the success that it became. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about Brick Mason? I re- just remembered Brick Mason. Was he a buddy? Of yours? <laughs> yeah, Brick Mason got married. Uh-huh. He lives out in Long Island uh, with a New York City school teacher, uh-huh. has a couple of kids, wow. and uh, he's doing pretty well. Good he's for doing him. pretty well. He practices law, plays the stock market, and uh, yeah, he's still around. He is a character. Doesn't do comedy anymore. I'll yeah. never forget when he met his girlfriend at the time, who eventually became his wife, I said, she is never going to let you do comedy in the long run. No, no, she'll let me know it. She'll let me know it. <laughs> and I said, Brick, forget it. You're done. If you marry her, you're never going to do stand-up again. <laughs> no, well, you're all wrong. She loves me and wants me to do whatever. Fast forward 20-some-odd <laughs> years, he hasn't done one set. Not one set. Probably for the best. <laughs> hate to say it. <laughs> He was another character from New York. Comedy Total character, Club. man! You really had an assembly of of, of characters. I, I wish I could have done a reality show back then about it. It was really... oh, listen, we tried to do a reality show based on my family and the clubs, and uh, we were this close to a really close to a deal on it, and then the company went under, and then my wife and I started evaluating it and saying. 
You know, every couple that winds up on a reality show winds up getting divorced. Mm. And then that's when we decided to not pursue the reality thing anymore. That's good. You put your marriage uh, I, first. I, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't want to wind up. Uh, it would have been great for business probably, but it, it would have been terrible for a marriage, you know, to have cameras around you all the time yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. I remember shooting the the, the pilot for it or the uh, the trailer for it, and it was so annoying. So I can only imagine it being a full fledged. Do you still have that TV trailer? Show. I'd love to see that. You know, I was looking for it today, uh, and this was shot about I'd say six, seven years ago. Well, actually, yeah, it had to be six, seven years ago because I remember talking to the guy at New York Comedy Club who, who signed the agreement with me, and I had it somewhere, and I'm trying to look for it. If I find it, I'll send it to you. All good guys, though. Steve Marshall, great guy. You know, I really miss him. Yeah, and he would destroy. I love Steve Marshall. He would Chris destroy Murphy. the house. Chris Murphy, the sweetest guy. He really kept uh, good people. You know, it says a lot about a person. And they're you look talented. at their friends. They're, they're talented. Oh yeah, they're, they're funny very people. talented. Uh, but I'm, I'm more than that. They're good people because there's a lot of talented people who are, you know, shitheads. But uh. But yeah, they, they were very, true. very sweet people. Uh, Al, Absolutely. you're also a very sweet person, and I appreciate uh, you giving Thank me you, your Danny. time here on the show. Uh, so Thank much you more. For having I, me I on. could talk to you all day, really. But um, <laughs> yeah, we can. <laughs> you know, we're all, we well, both well, went to the same uh, college too, Baruch College. That's right. That's yeah. right. And uh, listen, when I write the next book, we'll get on it again. Yeah, I remember you came and did my uh, my original podcast at my at my college. You were the, you know, I don't know if a lot of people in your audience know, but you were the trailblazer of podcasts. I don't, you know, I remember when you were doing the whole concept of a podcast, and you asked me on there, and I showed up, and it was like a bunch, it seemed like it just a bunch of college guys goofing around, and I said, "How is this going to make any money?" You know, that's the first <laughs> thing where my mind gravitates to is money, right. and. You know, all these years later, I guess, except for a few people, <laughs> people do a lot of podcasts and still not making any money. But um, yeah, well, you should do, you should do a podcast, people. Al. I think you'd be great. Uh, you know, I did one for a couple of years. It was called Broadway Comedy Club Radio with a guy named Clayton Fletcher. Oh, and it was well, doing yeah. very, very well. Yeah. And the problem was that I started going to, you know, Florida for the winters mm-hmm. and he was a poker player. Yeah, so he got very. He would go away for a couple of months a year to uh, Vegas and play in the World Series. Mm-hmm. So, like, I was away all winter. When I was getting back in May, he was ready to go to Vegas for the World Series. So the only time we were able to do the show was when he got back in August at, until December when I left for Florida again, and then we would lose momentum. Yeah. And it was before the time when you can, you know, really sort of do it like we're doing it now. Right, right. You know, back back then, you really couldn't do it that way. And uh, well, you've we got kinda, a, lot of, a lot of great stories. I think you know, maybe take another crack at it. You know, yeah, yeah. Get me a good co-host, and yeah, I'd love to do it. Uh, they say find somebody with a lot of Twitter followers, you know, because yeah. then you can you, know, you can build up your show. I don't know, but then again, I'm not a business whiz. You know, I just uh, I, I always go for whoever's. The funniest, I feel like, but I I um uh, want to ask you another question based on that. Sure. Do you still like watching comedy? I mean, how many nights can you watch it and still enjoy it? Uh, you know, I'm, I do have it queued up. I want to watch Seinfeld's show because 
you know, I feel Jerry Seinfeld is one of, you know, I never was a huge fan. I like real edgy comedy, mm-hmm. but I like him because of the great show he created. Uh, and I think he's one of the last left of the pure stand-up comedians that are doing it. I don't think Ray Romano does it much anymore. Ray was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of the people that went on to huge success, I can't think of a lot of them that still do it. Well, Kevin James is still out there a little bit, but mm-hmm. um, I to answer your question, other than somebody like him, I can't stand watching stand-up comedy. I got to get forced into it. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, like one time we were in um, Atlantic City and someone gave me free tickets to see Wanda Sykes. And uh, I said to my wife, I don't really got to go see comedy. You know, I don't want to really watch it. And let me tell you something. I watched it and couldn't stop laughing. That's she great. was so funny. So funny. And I got, an, you know, an, an itch to do it again after I saw her. And But I don't know. On some level, I wonder if I don't like seeing it either because some of the bitterness I do have uh, uh, on some of the comics that did make it, and, you know, the nonsense I had to deal with with them. Or because I'm frustrated that I didn't pursue it further than I would have liked to. So I don't know what the real reason is. But it's just I don't really like to watch a lot of stand-up comedy. But every so often I'll sit in the room. And then then watching some of these great comics, like we mentioned Greg Rogel or Russ Maneve or DC Benny, Mm -hmm. you know. I love um, DC. You know, I watch these guys. Wally Collins, you know. I'll watch them and say, shit, now I realize what I'm missing or missed, you know? And, and, and so, um, I, I, I do, uh, sometimes miss it. Uh, I don't watch it a lot. I, I, I don't know. I guess most comedians really can't watch a lot of comedy. No, can they? No. I, I mean, it's like if you're a magician, you know how the tricks are done at a certain point, And it's very rare that somebody, pulls a, a magic trick that you haven't seen or that you don't know about that. that excites right. You, and right? you can, you know, a lot of times I, I see the line coming. Yeah. So it's, you know, like, like I'll have friends that come to the club to visit from out of town and they go, Oh, let's go to your comedy club while we're in town. And I kind of, <laughs> you know, what'll wind up happening is we all sit down at the table. Mm-hmm. I excuse myself. And my wife says to them, basically, listen, he can't watch comedy that much. And I go in the green room and hang out with the comics. I can't, I can't you know, like I can't right. watch the show, right. you know. And uh, you know, well. it's sad because I lost an appreciation of something I used. I mean, I used to love to go to comedy clubs when I was dating girls uh, in my early twenties. You know, uh, yeah. that was the place I would take them. I would take them to the improv. I would take them to the comic strip, and I would watch guys like you know at that time, George Wallace or um, you know. Uh, David Brenner or Alan Cole, you know, guys like that, that were very funny, you know, but uh, I can't watch it that much anymore, unless it's someone special. You've seen, yeah, well, you know they're special when they make you laugh at this point, like that Wanda Sykes show. Oh, yeah. You know, and physical comedy. I like, you know, I do like Tracy Morgan. I think he's funny. Mm -hmm. Um, But I like, I love watching... um, I love watching Kevin James. I think besides uh, enjoying his stand-up, I love his physical, uh, his physical 
uh, comedy. You know, he's just a funny guy to watch. And a lovable and I don't character, know too, you know? You don't see that much anymore. That yeah. A lot of he's comics just, don't even go up there with that lovable quality. They're just... Uh, exactly. You know? Exactly. Anyway, the, exactly. Book, the book is called I Did It on a Dare. It's available on Amazon. And How I Created a Comedy Empire in 30 Short Years... Uh, Al Martin. When you get on, yeah, when you get on Amazon, just put in Al Martin. Amazon Books, Al Martin. Amazon Books, Al Martin. Congratulations on putting out this book. It's uh, it's really an Thank awesome you. achievement. Thanks, Danny, and look forward to talking to you again. Always. Thanks, pal. Take care. Bye, bye, now. Bye.